So tonight I want to talk about ethics, or uh, in the Pali, sila, S-I-L-A, sila. I'm just curious, um, how many people knew that tonight's topic was ethics? So what comes up for you when you hear this word and I think, you know, on the most basic level, I wonder if it interests you or if you kind of want to push it away. Rules. Rules. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts? I feel like I've been meaning to practice actively with it for a while, but I can't. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh, I'm sorry. I'm in a community that has recently been badly damaged by some lack of ethics. Yeah. Interesting. So, I asked the question anticipating that for many of us it conjures up associations of rules. Um, And I think it's this view that makes ethics a hard sell. We don't... uh, And I've done a little bit of this, like I've scrolled through different lists of Dharma talks that were given in public that are available for free download uh, and looked at all the different topics and ethics is not, uh, it's not routinely discussed in uh, contemporary Dharma circles. And yet, um, you know, considering what what Fee said, coming from a community that uh, is in turmoil in response to compromised ethics, those are my words, not his, um, there's some indication that uh, there's a significant value potentially uh, for us individually and collectively in understanding uh, what ethics really is, what it really implies. And that sometimes without it, um, a great harm can be done, either uh, internally or externally, either to ourselves or uh, to others or uh, within uh, groups or communities. But it has this, it easily has this um, overarching sense of um, like commandments, uh, uh, do's and don'ts, lists of do's and don'ts, and, and shouldn'ts. Uh, if it's not a strong don't, there's a sense, well, at least I'm being told what I shouldn't do. And I think that we, um, you know, I think, I wonder if part of the problem is that we've, we've all internalized our own set of shouldn'ts. Uh, 
uh, and the Buddhist tradition is interested in freedom and uh, shouldn'ts or shoulds limit our freedom. So that I think that's part of the conflict, right? Like I want to be free. Um, I want to be untethered inwardly and outwardly and um, psychologically. And yet here's within the Buddhist tradition a core, by the way, a very core stream of practice. One of three. We basically have ethics, meditation, and wisdom. The Buddha's threefold sasana. And we want to be spontaneous and free in the world. We want, uh, we want an inner spontaneous, perhaps. We uh, imagine that that would uh, feel good. It would, be, it would be freeing. It would be liberating. And ethics suggests, if not rules, if not shoulds and shouldn'ts, it does offer often uh, some riverbanks. You know, it, it, it seems to be suggesting, like, stay over here. Over here, there's a greater potential potential for trouble, right? Um, so, I, I want to try to, uh, you know, I want to name that and then enter, uh, explore a little bit ways we might be able to reconcile that. <clears throat> Sometimes when we hear uh, the word ethics uh, or sila um, it conjures up images of monastics and robes you know and they have no possessions and they uh, monastics for example traditionally couldn't uh, have uh, and in some cases touch money and they couldn't store food um, and many traditions can't have sex in strict variations of the Theravada or the insight lineage can't enjoy music, dance, theaters, plays. And so, you know, now ethics becomes something that's, you know, against the arts, not fun, not creative. Um, and, you know, most of us aren't going to sign up for that, right? So one of the results of a, a, a really strict or, or of a religious rendering um, or a literal rendering of ethics um, is that our, our actual understanding of ethics is too narrow. And ethics is not at all this, but rather my understanding of ethics, the more I consider it myself, is that it's, it's rather like this. It's, it's a very inclusive, it's a very panoramic way of looking at our life. And it's, it's one that, um, have you ever found your, yourself um, thinking like, I kind of fell off the path, like I'm not really, and when people say that, what they're usually saying is that I haven't meditated in a while. 
So when, when ethics, when, when we have a proper understanding of ethics and it becomes central to our practice and our path, we don't really fall off the path because path is not limited to how many hours you're logging in on the meditation cushion. Um, we're really starting to investigate all of the various ways we uh, intersect with others and with the world through body, speech, and mind. Right? So, in that regard, ethics or sealer is something that can be woven, like mindfulness, can be woven into every moment of our life, every single moment. Every single time, every single time, we make contact with the world through body, speech, and mind, we have a twofold impact. It's as if we leave an imprint on both ourself and on the world. Right? There's some kind of a there's some kind of a mark that's been left and sometimes it's really subtle it's very hard for others to see but we might feel it or it's very hard for us to see because we have um, adapted strategies that are repressive and we're not noticing certain internal experiences or states but other people feel the impact of what we've done in body speech or mind In one of the suttas, uh, it is said, it is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment shines. It is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment shines. So again, all the ways that we make contact with each other all of the ways that we use our body, we use our words, and all of the phenomena of the mind, all the thinking, all the judging, all the angry thoughts, all the generous thoughts, right? Um, one's discernment, um, One's development, one's awareness, one's understanding shows itself. And as such, our gaps in development, our gaps in learning, our gaps in seeing clearly, our gaps in mindfulness, they also reveal themselves. Right? So, sila then, or ethics, and again, sila is the Pali for ethics, so I'm using these interchangeably. Sila concerns itself with all of the ways that we make a positive impression on the world and within our own mind. So there's, there's a suggestion here um, 
or a reference to cause and effect, right? So what we, what we do, what we say, what we think shows up in future moments, uh, both inside ourselves, in our environment, in the group, in the family system, in the community, in the wider culture. And Sila then also, uh, just as naturally, concerns itself with all the ways that we make a negative or harmful impression on the world. So we could say that when there is enough wisdom, when there's enough wisdom and kindness that we are able to act in a way that, benef- that is beneficial for the well-being or the welfare of the world, Pause here. Let's say that again. Sila, we could say, is when there is enough wisdom and kindness that we are able to act in a way that is beneficial for the welfare of the world. Likewise, then, sila becomes a practice by which we explore and also hopefully strengthen our own capacity for wisdom and kindness. And I, I choose to point this out because we, we tend to narrowly equate kindness with metta or loving kindness practice and wisdom with insight practice. But what I'm suggesting is that sila itself is a critical vehicle for exploring both kindness and wisdom. And when kindness and wisdom come together in such a way that we orient skillful, empathetic, kind attention toward the suffering of another, their expression is compassion. So sometimes we hear Sila talked about as not taking things that are not given. Not lying, not stealing, not causing harm through sexual misconduct, not causing harm through speech. These are, these are the core uh, trainings. These are the core precepts or ethical uh, trainings. And it's important to both unpack and expand what is really meant by them. You know, most of us are not, you know, like, if somebody leaves their cell phone on the blanket, it's very unlikely that in this room that cell phone is going to disappear. So what then are we really, really talking about? I'm more interested, I mean, 
don't steal each other's cell phone. But I'm more interested in, in like, you know, like, um, I'm really interested in, like, not taking someone's safety. Um, not taking someone's self-confidence by consistently condemning them with words. We think it's useful because we think it temporarily feels good to really tell someone off if we're unhappy with them. But if we really pay attention, we notice that it kind of scars us internally. Okay. That's one of the um, results of ongoing practice is that it's, it's harder. The repressive, my sense of it is that the repressive tendencies weaken. And then we, we feel the truth of sila. We feel the truth of karma. And it gets harder to walk away from things without taking uh, ownership of, our, of the way we showed up. Uh, so there's a, there's a kind of humility and an intimacy uh, that begins to, to change us at our core. It, you, you, you sometimes will see it in, in people's disposition. There's a sense of going through the world with a felt sense of things, relationally. This morning I woke up at, uh, set my alarm for 7 o'clock to be ready for a 7.30 appointment, which is pretty pretty rare for me. I don't schedule things that early. uh, I have to routinely get... uh, uh, blood drawn and have been finding it hard to get to one of the sites where I I can go and, and have this done and my blood gets mailed to California and so we found someone a uh, phlebotomist who can come to the I'm learning this word phlebotomist <laughs> it'll be on the um, it'll be in our next Spelling bee. <laughs> um, and so I had phlebotomists coming to the house at 7.30. They were supposed to arrive between 7.30 and 8. And uh, about 7.20, I got a call. They were, they were late. They were going to be late. And I was, I was immediately irritated. Um, and... Uh, you know, I said, you know, like, that's, that's so typical, you know. And, and there, was this, there was this history. It was very, very hard to get this appointment scheduled, uh, just logistically. Like, we had to make many, many calls, and, and then we would schedule callback times, and, and people wouldn't be there. And it was just, it, it, it was unusually difficult to set up this, this appointment. And <clears throat> so I kind of... Uh, I, at the be- I didn't trust if it would work out at all, and then they were late, and those sort of matched my expectations. And so I'm getting irritated, and um, and so I said, well, I, you know, I, I can't eat because it's a fasting blood test, and so I didn't really have anything to do. So I said, okay, well, I'll meditate. And so I sat on the couch and meditated, meditating. And then at a certain time, the the phone rings and. Um, they said, "Well, actually, we're going to be we're going to be later uh, than than we thought." 
and I started to conjure up all these assumptions about who I was talking on the phone with. And they weren't... Uh, <coughs> I wasn't painting a, uh, a very uh, bright or good picture of this person, who I didn't... Of course, I didn't know at all. Um, and before I hung up that, that, that second call... I was really tempted to either cancel, like I like forget it, you know, um, or to just kind of let them know, right? Like that this is really, you know, it's an inconvenience to me. I have blood sugar issues, you know. I'm starting to get a headache, you know. You gotta, you know, you, you just you got you have to be here now. Right? <laughs> But you all know what traffic in this area can be like at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. I later learned that they were driving from the South Shore. They had come in from the South Shore. They had to see somebody in Harvard Square before me. And they were just in traffic all morning. So I saw my mind doing this. And, you know, it was one of those occasions where... Seeing my mind was coupled with interest and curiosity. I wonder what's really going on. I wonder why they're late. Uh, enough equanimity to, to feel the headache, you know, to, to feel what my body does when it's gone a long time without food, and, and to more so observe that rather than being afraid in any, in, you know, for any reason. Um, and, and, and I think the salient piece was I, I saw that I was judging the, I was, you know, without giving you all the details. Um, and it was as if, as if I said to myself, you know, like, I don't know what I said to myself, but the thought was, they're probably a really good person. You know, it was like that, Sela functions like in this really kind of basic way, you know, um, sort of like, like, who am I, you know, like, So he was quite late. There was plenty more. So I sat. I, I just continued to meditate until they knocked on the door. And I don't know how useful this story is, but um, he was a really, really sweet, sweet man who was really good at what he did. That is his craft of you know, in my case, taking a lot of blood and um, just having, just having a, a remarkable demeanor and presence and um, you know, very professional, but from a light sense of humor. And, uh, you know, he's in someone else's house early in the morning, which is, you know, it's a little, you know, doesn't know me, and, but just really tactful and, and skillful in so many ways. And I never connected with or contacted him or came into his space with hostility or aggression, and I was able to see all these uh, um, good attributes, and we were able to have a really sweet connection. And so the anger and irritation, it flipped. And I was, you know, I don't want anyone in my house at 8 o'clock in the morning, and yet 
here I am uh, really enjoying myself uh, and uh, liking something about the exchange. And uh, I trust that based on the way that went, um, it was a very warm experience for him at the very least. It was, it was neutral uh, and he was able to go off in his day and without holding or carrying or having to work through whatever he would have internalized had I uh, related to him from my anger or irritation, right? And so I don't know if that sounds like Sila to you, but my understanding is that that was predominantly Sila. It was right speech. It was an expression of at least generosity, in some cases maybe kindness. It was there was a lot of restraint and there was a lot of renunciation and there was mindfulness, watching the physical pain and watching the judgment. So there was there was mindfulness that allowed it to play out in that way. Um, but I related to him uh, from more of a wholesome or pure mind state. And so the exchange was one of goodness, and I could see the goodness in him, is, is the point. I could, it allowed me to see the goodness in him. And of course, the outcome could have been very different, right? So when, when we reduce sila to narrow or subjective definitions of good and bad and right and wrong, we're really, I think, we're really missing the point. Um, when we view sealer as a way to gauge, measure, and refine our very understanding of what is implied by suffering and freedom, we're much closer to the path of Dharma that the Buddha taught. Personally, Sila was one of the first things that attracted me to the, to, to the um, Buddhist path. I was really interested in the idea or a possibility that there could be a way of thinking or working or reflecting or practicing such that every area of my life could be infiltrated or every area of my life could be, could be practiced. There was, there's a kind of a, um, before I would have talked, before I would have used language like a wholesomeness, it had a, it has, it had a wholeness. There was a sense of like, oh, everything is included in this idea or this exploration of living a spiritual life or of, of trying to, uh, Sila was, the, was a significant part of the answer of, how I could try to understand and execute some goodness in a world that I thought lacked enough goodness. Uh, it was really clear to me that, that, that this idea of ethics was a way to, was a way to do that. <clears throat> I, I, I took um, and still take Sila to mean that the path could keep getting more and more subtle, keep getting more and more subtle. In that sense, Sila provides for me 
an ongoing sense that I can grow into this path or I can grow into myself or I can grow into my understanding of the Dharma. I can grow into this understanding and embodiment of goodness. It's so, it's so subtle, it's so pervasive. Until I feel a really refined sense of order and harmony within myself, I haven't fully understand or mastered sila. <clears throat> also from the uh, suttas, when a wise person established in virtue, so virtue would be another way of uh, talking about the practice of sila, uh, the development of sila, virtues would be wholesome qualities, you know, like generosity and compassion and kindness and patience, friendliness, compassion, if I didn't say that. When a wise person established in virtue, so, so there you have the, the correlation of wisdom and, and virtue or ethics, develops consciousness and understanding, then as a practitioner, ardent and sagacious, they succeed in disentangling this tangle. The tangle is, ref is, is a reference to the, to the confusion of the mind that we often experience. The mind is tangled. The mind is grasping. The mind is anxious. The mind is stressed. Um, so being established in virtue gives rise to wisdom which allows us to see clearly and disentangle the tangle. When the tangle is disentangled, we're more prone to wholesome, skillful, helpful, healthy motivations and actions. And so there's a positive feedback loop. Right? And our mind calms, stabilizes, our tendency to respond with greed, hatred, and delusion, the opposite of the virtues, um, is temporarily, has temporarily abated. And, and, and again, so it's a positive cycle. So we're, we're relating in the world uh, in a more virtuous way. Right? That's better for us, and it's better for other people. One of the ways um, that sila can be understood uh, is as a kind of safety system. It's sometimes referred to as the gift of safety. Um, and there are five immeasurable gifts. We can't measure them because their, their value is uh, unfathomable. Mm -hmm. 
And these are the five precepts that I alluded to earlier. We, we give up uh, the destruction of life. We abstain from that. And as a contemplation, we, we won't so much do it here tonight because there's, there's some other ways of thinking about um, sila that I want to present, but I would encourage you to reflect on what is meant by um, destruction or taking of life. Starting with the most obvious and then, and, then, and then what's underneath that? Like, how do we destroy life? What, I mean, what is, what is even implied by life? Which then actually could mean anything and everything. So how do we destroy that or harm that? We give up taken what is not given. We abstain from that. As I mentioned before, this is more than um, taking the material thing that you want. We give up uh, causing harm through sexuality. This means being honest in our relationships. Um, This means looking at the subtle and gross effects of misogyny. It means considering what is compromised in objectification, both for that or, or both for whom is objectified and if and when one is doing the objectifying, what is the result of that? One thing that I, I think happens here is that there's a huge divide created when objectification happens. And, divi- and it's a divide such that those two people can no longer be equal. So where else can you ta- where else can you take um, where else can you take this idea of harm and sexuality? Okay, how far can you go with that? Are you willing to have these conversations with your friends, partners, family members? We give up false speech. We give up untimely speech. We give up harmful speech. We give up harsh speech. Give up intoxicants that cloud the mind. Paying attention to our relationship to drugs and alcohol and technology and news and anything that clouds the mind. In doing so, they, those who practice those techniques give immeasurable give to immeasurable beings freedom from fear freedom from hostility and freedom from oppression so should we want equity and inclusion and representation 
in the world, that is going to require safety. And safety is going to hinge on our view and the actions associated with our view. And ethics begins as a study or inquiry at the level of view and then manifests as a practice through our actions. So if we want healthy, sane, safe, wholesome communities, relationships, the foundation of those relationships and communities will require a component of ethics, for sure. Hence, ethics is not optional. Though, many communities and traditions, including many communities and traditions, I think, within the Buddhist, in the history of Buddhism, have relegated ethics to something far removed from primary or central. And great harm comes from that, can come from that. So I'd like to say something next about the connection between sila and freedom. Freedom in Buddhism is the experience of less suffering. In our culture, uh, we tend to view freedom as having as many choices or options available to us as possible. It's a like, primary way we think about freedom. It's one of the ways uh, most of us want money uh, because money... Pres- uh, presents itself as being able to offer choices and, and to a large extent that's, that's true um, and then in consideration of this then and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning sila can actually feel like a reduction in choices or options right so in our culture uh, freedom is getting what we want or desire. And Sila actually asks us, in many cases, to renounce or to restrain from getting or having or seeking what we initially think we want or need. So this is the principle of compromising or sacrificing or letting go or giving up a short-term happiness for a bigger, deeper, more sustainable, long-term happiness or contentment. From a Buddhist perspective, freedom is being released from the wrong views and actions that cause mental distress. We do what is necessary to serve this lofty goal. Over time, as we practice more, we understand that there is great benefit in giving up immediate short-term happiness for more penetrating and sustainable 
long-term contentment. Dharma is sometimes described as the great protector. The great protector. Metta, or friendliness, is a great protection. So the development of skillful means, the development of virtue, protects our mind from the arising of unskillful intentions or volitions that would be followed by unskillful or harmful actions. So by cultivating right view, and by cultivating the capacity to operate skillfully in concert with right view, we don't do the things that cause harm. We don't do the things that cause suffering. So our mind either hurts or protects other people. Our mind either restores goodness in the world or reduces it. In one sutta, the Buddha says to Rahula, what is a mirror for? Rahula says, for reflection. Yes, in the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, so this is before... So this is before we do something. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect. This bodily action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction? Would it lead to self-pain? To the affliction of others, would it hurt other people? Or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If, on reflection, you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. Not a lot of ambiguity there. Absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection, you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. So what the Buddha is saying is that before you do something, bring as much discernment to it as possible. Our capacity or level of discernment will increase or grow over time. That, that changes with, with uh, insight. And then the, the Buddha goes on and says, while you're doing the action, go through the same reflection. Is this causing harm to yourself, others, or both? If it's not, you're free to continue. If it is, stop. Then, 
the Buddha goes on and says, after you're done with whatever that thing is that you were doing, reflect, you know? Give some deserved energy and attention to understanding the impact of your actions. Go through the same questions. Measure your behavior. And then he applies the same model to um, words and thoughts. Right? So it just keeps repeating itself. Venerable uh, Pauk Sayadaw says, or was attributed to him, we must first learn the training of morality to practice. If we do not know the training of morality, we cannot purify our conduct. Then we must learn shamatha meditation. So then we can learn meditation. We can concentrate our mind to control and concentrate our mind. If we do not know about shamatha meditation, how can we cultivate concentration? If we do not practice concentration, how can we control our mind? Then we must learn how to cultivate wisdom. So a foundation implies that sealer is a central component for awakening, for freedom. Wisdom sees the interrelationship between actions in the present moment and suffering or peace in the future. And because we have this understanding, we do our best to apply discernment every moment and to match the most suitable action to each occasion. In the Dhammapada, it is said, this is more of a charge, Strive hard and become wise. Rid of impurities and cleansed of stains, the, the scars of unskillfulness. You shall not come again to birth and decay. That's a reference to samsara and suffering. Right? So there's work to be done which takes effort, that rids the mind of confusions and impurities. Uh, The meditation path is a process of purification we hear sometimes. And that releases us from the habitual patterns and cycles that we're caught in that continue to cause harm or pain for us and other people. Lastly, ethics as a contemplative practice involves itself with reflecting on the welfare of not only ourselves, but others. I've said this before. When wisdom and kindness come together, and I said something similar to this at the beginning, When wisdom and kindness come together in discernment and they are oriented toward the pain and suffering of others, they are expressed as compassion. Prior to the Buddha's death, he declared to the students who were attending to him his wishes 
And he said this, he said, Practitioners, you to whom I have made known the truth about which I have direct knowledge, having thoroughly learnt them, you should cultivate them, develop them, and frequently practice them, so that the pure teachings may be established and last long. For the welfare and happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the welfare and happiness of devas and human beings. So we do this so that the world may benefit. 